Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Gwintelligence Podcast. I am David Marver of Change the Padres, joined by Soft Padres Jagoff. Th- thanks, Marver. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. yeah. This no has problem. been uh, Padres crazy. The, 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 just the, the energy behind the Padres, I think, in the last two days is I haven't seen it in years. This is like the highest people have cared about the Padres maybe maybe in a decade. It honestly is. I actually have had some friends from California text me in the last two days. Normally we'll only talk sports if it has to do with like the Lakers or something. But they've actually texted me to talk about how soft the fucking Padres are. I'm not kidding. That's There really is a buzz about what has happened in the past couple days that I haven't seen in a little while. And you live on the East Coast. Are people talking about this? Very... Very vaguely. So, I mean, I try to listen to sports radio on the way to work just to get a flavor of what they're talking about locally. Um, also because I'm trying to pick up an NFL team and the Eagles are here and they're kind of young and maybe I'll root for them. I would say this morning on the Philly-centric ones, there was no mention of it at all. Like not a single – not a peep. Um, but I do get ESPN radio and I did notice – I can't remember who it was. One of them had mentioned it for about 30 seconds, and that was it. So, no, not really. Okay. Well, it's obviously dominated the yeah. story here, but that's because local media doesn't have uh, doesn't have stadium talk to do anymore. Yeah. No, there's nothing to talk about in San Diego for sports. I mean, besides the uh, soccers, I guess, or whatever the, the deal is with the MLS team. So I well, imagine it's probably that's dominating dead. the airwaves so, here. So there's there's yeah. literally nothing for them to talk about. Yeah, But, hey, let's talk about it a little bit, or maybe even a lot. Um, I don't really care to get into whether or not it was a dirty play. I think you and I see eye-to-eye that, obviously, he was on the he was on the field side of the third baseline. He clearly was not in the path. He took out our catcher. It's just not a clean play. Whether or not you want to call Rizzo a dirty play or not, I think it's kind of uh, in the definition that if you're making not clean plays and you're not a clean player... I think what I care to talk about more is just the way the Potters handled the whole situation. Um, well, that's really real quickly, where there's yeah. this like I feel like there was this overarching defense of Rizzo where they would like, and even Andy Green did it in his quotes where he would be like, uh, it, "He it was a cheap shot." He said it was disheartening, but he's like, "Oh, Rizzo's not a dirty player. It was definitely not malicious." Uh, I don't know if he's a dirty player. I don't watch him enough. Uh, I think it was a dirty play. I think most of us would agree with that. But it was definitely malicious, which is defined as, like, intending to do harm. Like, if you run into a catcher that's not moving and isn't expecting you to plow through him with your knee, I would argue that you are intending to do harm. And, like, I put out on Twitter that it's the same as if I uh, if I was like, yeah, I punched Marver in the face, but, but like, I didn't mean to hurt him when I did that. Like, it, it's exactly the same. It, it's certainly malicious. Yeah, no, I mean, there's no there's no doubt in my mind, and I, I put it in my post today when I was talking about basically the winners and losers. That Rizzo let, comes out a winner take, in this. Let's take a break here. You put a post up today. I know, I did. We were at 112 days of no Marver posts, and you put a post up. Yeah, I know. That's what this, I mean, that goes back to the first point you made, and like this actually like fired up part of the fan base. You know, like I had to say something about this because... It's notable and it's topical and it's going to go away probably in the next couple of days. So I had to get something out there. I also just had opinions that 
I wanted to express it. Like I wasn't seeing from other places. Um, we can talk about those a little bit, but well, yeah, yeah, I wrote an- something. A- another How about that? Aside, I'm a member like, of the blog again. Yeah, I know. Kind of. <laughs> My blogging membership got renewed. I feel like well, it's like hey, a pilot's license. I feel like it's like a pilot's license. You have to do a certain number of miles, you know? Let's not go jacking like each other off quite yet, Marver. You, uh, you're a guest writer <laughs> at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, real quick oh. on his side, like what you just said about how you know you got your you know got your Padres juices flowing. Uh, one thing I didn't like was I saw like some members of the media. Like one pops out, Jesse Agler tweeted, he's like, uh, uh, you know, it's good to see the passion, but this really brings out the worst of Padres Twitter. And all I think is, thank Christ, there's people that actually care about this team. Like if anything, this is the this is the best. I mean, assuming Austin Hedges is okay and his beautiful face is fine, and uh, the bruising uh, is not visible at the surface. Other than that, this is like the best thing that's ever happened to the Padres. I mean, with the way the ninety four nine deals going and their you know their radio problems, uh, yeah. I mean, like they this, should be encouraging pre- debate. They should be they should be expressing that they're so happy to see fans come out and they just have like a difference of opinion, but. The franchise has taken a totally different turn on this than I think I would have if I was in charge. Um, and I guess we can talk about that. But, yeah, it's it's a little weird to see people come out and then the team officials instantly, like, punch them in the face. Yeah. Like, this created, a, would you agree, a hundred times more enthusiasm than the five-win plan, which was an actual plan to create enthusiasm <laughs> compared to this, which um, was totally unintended. <laughs> I would say the hundred, the, the five win plan generated zero enthusiasm, uh, uh, and that's with math. whatever enthusiasm units you wanted to. So I would say <laughs> it's an infinite increase in excitement. Yes, it's do, math. Do you think it's amazing that uh, this uh, unplanned incident is uh, possibly by an infinite factor more competent at creating enthusiasm than Wayne Partello? <laughs> Speaking of Wayne Partello, and you're going to hate this, uh, my boss was in San Diego recently, and uh, he, he won some award at work. He got to go on a business trip to San Diego, or not a business trip, a vacation trip. And I uh, reached out to Wayne Partello. I was like, hey, my boss is going to be at the game today, expecting that like maybe I might be able to get my boss a free beer out of it. But he actually went down there, grabbed him, brought him up into the booth, got him to meet uh, Don Osillo, which is cool because my boss is from the East Coast and an Orioles fan, and so... Uh, he actually had a great time, so I want to give a shout out to Wayne Portello, believe it or not. Marver, this And I don't know if this makes me a shill. Yes, this doesn't help this, our case that we're the ones that don't take gifts. What are you <laughs> I doing? I just wanted a free beer. I was like, hey, my boss is gonna be there if you want some bonus points. Just throwing is, it out there, you know. Is our is our credibility worth thirteen fifty to you? I don't think it's gonna affect our credibility at all. I'm concerned. I'm a little concerned. I, I mean, I, just I did, turned I, down Lexus seats to re- retain credibility, and you so easily bought that a single beer for your boss was enough. Have some respect for yourself. <laughs> I, you know, what? bonus points from me aren't really worth anything, so it's not like I'm handing out any favors. I'm just giving a shout out because it was topical. But, anyways, back to what you're talking about. We can agree he's totally incompetent at his actual job, though, right? Of creating enthusiasm, I would say fan base. <laughs> I would say, and I've said this on the podcast many, many times. I think the the job of producing excitement for a tanking ball club after what they just went through in terms of multiple different 
disjointed plans under the Mike D regime is a very difficult job, and I don't think they're making it any easier on themselves. That's very politically correct so that you can continue receiving free beers from the team, Marver. (laughs) I'm I'm going to zero games this year, so there's no free beers for me. Also, I'm not drinking beer. I don't know if you missed that on our previous podcast. God, Marver, I don't listen to half the things you say, if we're being honest. But anyways, that's very back sad. to that's very this sad, whole thing. Yeah. A lot of excitement from this, yes. <laughs> so, like, as part of the excitement, obviously a lot of attention, and you're probably not listening to things like Darren Smith, or maybe you are at work, uh, but it's kind of dominated the conversation on what this means for Andy Green, because, and Darren Smith's point was, do you know how hard it is to be... Uh, having people calling for you to be fired uh, in an openly tanking season where the ownership and fans have all given a green light to not having any accountability at all for performance this year, to even with that, still having fans calling for your head, which which they are calling for his head very much so today, a lot, uh, a large segment of the Padres fan base. What do you, What do you think this says about Andy Green, I guess – in regards to this decision, but also in a larger scale, like as a manager in general. Yeah, and I think we should get to the other manager in general stuff later because we haven't really done an Andy Green recap in a while. But, you know, as far as this thing goes, um, I think it's it's pretty weird how it played out, right? Like I, I got – I made basically the same point Darren made in my post today that he has one of the easiest gigs in baseball this year. Like no one's going to pay attention to the wins or losses – in fact, some fans might applaud more losses. Like, I'm hoping for them to continue to lose, and I'm a little bit worried they're now five and a half games behind the Phillies in terms of getting the first pick. That should be the easiest job. Like, the only way this guy should have had any anyone yelling in his ear is if he pulled someone in the middle of a no-hitter. And even then, I would be like, okay, it's a young pitcher, assuming the only person that could possibly get us a no-hitter this year is the Nelson Lamette. You know, he's a young pitcher. Maybe his pitch count was high. I get that. Um, even though I might disagree and like to see the no-hitter done once. But, yeah, it's I, I can't imagine it's very, you know, I, I could not imagine this scenario happening a week ago. Like, if you had run this by me, I would not have imagined we would be sitting here talking about how a lot of fans want Andy Green fire because it was just so on the periphery of all the different things to look at and follow this year. But, look, I think the way he handled it was actually fairly terrible from a game strategy standpoint. I have no problem with the franchise deciding they don't want to throw at a player. I think personally it's fine to throw at a non-life-altering part of the person's body as a deterrent to future players hitting Austin Hedges. I think that's a legitimate argument you can make that, look, it's not headhunting. It's not throwing at someone for flipping a bat. It's not throwing at a, a different player on the team in order to punish someone else's transgressions. I'm I would advocate... You know, you can throw in uh, Anthony Rizzo's hands. It prevents it presents a baseball risk to Anthony Rizzo in the same way that Rizzo presented a baseball risk to Austin Hedges. And in fact, stop I would argue the that hands. Rizzo. Why are you hung up on the hands? Hands are full of tiny uh, bones it, that are easily broken. Like at least use thigh right. That's the whole or, point. Or butt. But I, I don't think that's really a deterrent. I think the hands present a possibility of Rizzo missing time. That is an actual baseball risk. That is not a risk for him in his life. It's not going to cause him problems down the line, you know, late in life. It's it's not going to do any of those things to him. It's just going to knock him out of baseball 
for a little bit of time, maybe if it happens to hit him on the exact right spot. And I think that's honestly a fair, just result for him um, because it's not – like I said, it, it's not like you're throwing at someone's head and potentially debilitating them for the rest of their lives, even though that's a rare occurrence anyways. It's just not – it's not what you're doing. You're basically – it's not so much eye for an eye, but it's at least presenting evidence that in the future, if a person runs over Austin Hedges, look, we're going to look to sideline you in baseball for the same potentially amount of time. It's a deterrent. Um, but the way they did it, it's not even that they didn't throw at him because I could even understand that. Like if they were just like, nope, our, our strategy is you know, we're not going to throw at him because we just don't think – that's right morally. Fine. I can understand that argument. But you can't, prior to the game, go out to the media and tell everyone you're not going to throw at him. Because all that does is it gives an advantage to your opponent. Because then, in their heads, they know you're not throwing at them. And in fact, Rizzo homeward on the first pitch that he saw in the game. Second. If second Andy pitch. Green had gone... Second pitch. Whatever. If Andy Green had gone out there and gone, you know, we'll see what happens. Knowing full well that they didn't intend to throw on him. And even if he went to Jocene and did the same thing he did and tell him, you know, hey, you're not allowed to throw at him. As long as there's not the perception on the opponent's sideline that you're not going to throw at them, it's an advantage. And then to go and hide behind, oh, you can't peg someone because you're putting a player on base, and that's worse for winning, while giving away this other advantage and then intentionally walking the same player in that game is absolutely asinine. And that is the problem that I have with it. I don't have a problem with... Not hitting Rizzo. I think it's justified to go after certain non-debilitating parts of his body, but I don't have a problem with not going after him so long as you're not stupid in the process. And the way that they went about it, uh, basically telling the other team they weren't going to do it, not even trying to bluff to get them to bench Anthony Rizzo, and this is something I mentioned in my article, something I pulled out of my ass, I would have gone to Joe Madden and said, hey, if you don't bench Rizzo, we're going to randomly plunk someone every time through the lineup. Knowing full well, I'm not actually going to do it, but maybe Joe Madden blinks. I think there's a non-zero percent chance that he blinks. And having not even tried any of those other methods to extract some sort of advantage and then say you're doing it because you don't want to give the other team an advantage, I think that's insulting, honestly. Well, so that's my take on it. And ultimately, like, it, I don't think it's necessarily going to matter with how players in the clubhouse look at him, even though uh, Ken Spangenberg did favorite almost all of my posts advocating for them to plunk Rizzo. And uh, so did our local congressman. I still think that it it just doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. But if you're looking at it from a strategic perspective, they were you know not strategic in the way they went about it. And that could reflect other things about Andy Green as a manager that I don't want in a manager. Like, like other, it might in, indicate that in other... Um, circumstances that actually do matter, you know, way down the line when the Potters are hopefully competing, that he's going to play it poorly because he doesn't, he's not thinking about it from a strategic perspective. Because he obviously didn't do it from a strategic yeah, perspective. So, I mean, I, I think I look at it a little differently. I'm not, I'm not in favor of the whole vigilante justice thing. Um, I didn't, I, I don't think you need to plunk him to, uh, you know, make a point. I, I think we can all agree that the, <laughs> The way this played out couldn't have played out worse for Andy Green. Uh, yeah. Well, worse for everyone but Rizzo. And it couldn't have played out better for Rizzo. Like, it's insane. Well, I guess it could have been worse for Austin Hedges, right? Yes. I think we, we got lucky on that. We but did. everyone else, it played out as poorly as possible. Right. Like, like giving up a home run to Rizzo on the second pitch, it, it really couldn't have gone worse right there. And uh, it, it couldn't have gone worse for anyone. Yeah. Throw Chessine there because it was pretty clear from his quotes today that— and last night that 
he wanted to plunk him, and Andy Green forced him to pinky swear that he would not hit Anthony Rizzo deliberately. And then, as a result, you know, gives up the home run. So, um, so, so I'm not with you on like it's it's cool if you just plunk him in the hand or whatever. Um, but I do think Green really couldn't have played the whole thing worse in a lot of ways. Like I, I actually appreciate that he came out as the grown up and some of his reasoning, but he just talks too much. Like he he says way yeah. too much unnecessary stuff. And that's kind of Andy no, Green. I don't have a like, problem with the grown-up act of it also, but that has to come after you haven't plunked him. Like, after the series, you can make these points to the media Andy Green's making. Again, I don't have a, I don't have a problem necessarily with that moral argument. The problem is just giving away the advantage and then saying you're doing it for winning's sake. It's like, no, you obviously did well, it. Well, no, that was like, the worst part because he said, uh, it yeah. just doesn't make sense, you know? Uh, like, why would you put a guy on base? That, that just uh, increases the chances that they'll win. And then he... And then he then he intentionally walks Anthony Rizzo, which intentionally yeah. puts him on first base. So, it, like <laughs> yeah. for purposes of the game, there, there's actually no difference between uh, plunking Anthony Rizzo with a pitch or intentionally walking him. So that was kind of a, a garbage point by by Andy Green. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I just think he talks too much, and like you watch him talk, and his eyes are all shifty, and he talks super fast, and people think he's really smart because he talks really fast, and he probably is pretty smart, but he's just he just can't stop himself, and I think that he could have gotten the point across with some very vague statements, um, and then done this behind closed doors where we wouldn't be talking about it as much now. Um, he could have just said no comment the entire time, and it would have been played better. Yeah, which is almost foreboding and scary if he was just going to say no comment. I know. Um, right. So, I, I don't know. And then the thing with Chassine where he – that's – the stuff he said about how, uh, you know, um, about how Green forced him to promise that he wouldn't deliberately hit Rizzo. Chassine had no reason to say that to the – media like he's not a he's not a rookie that doesn't know how to handle this he's a veteran that knows exactly what he's doing when he goes to the media and so that raised questions in my head on like why why is this player undermining his manager i mean not directly but he's undermining his manager when he puts that quote out there um and then he had another quote later on i don't know if you read it dennis lynn published it today where he kind of fleshes it out a little bit but does make the point that in the clubhouse um some people when andy green you know had called this meeting and told them that they under no circumstances would be plunking anthony rizzo that uh i think the quote was some were surprised some kind of get it like that's not even a glowing like like that that the only reason you say that is to show that there are divisions in the clubhouse that do not agree and that there are – and it's in a way it's kind of Chessine saying, uh, I'm not soft. And there's only some that only barely get it, I guess is the way that comes off too. Yeah. Like best case scenario, they sort of Kind of get, get it, yeah. Worst case scenario, they disagree. Yeah. And, and, and they're surprised. And I mean do you see that? that? This is just a way for Chessine to broadcast to the rest of the league that I am not soft. I was ordered to do this by someone that's soft. And, and – I mean, I get it for his self-preservation, but uh, I did think it was a little curious in how that reflects on the relationship of the clubhouse to the manager. Do you think this uh, came from above Andy Green at all, potentially? I don't think so because I listened to Ron Fowler like, this morning. Like, and I, I personally, like are we going to blame this on uh, – sorry. 
like, is this going to be another scenario where, you know, AJ Peller makes all these trades for Matt Kemp or whatever, and we just blame it on Mike Dean, like, don't even, I mean, I guess when we're doing analysis now, we barely go back and look at some of those trades, because it's just sort of understood that he was mandated to do that, and that was part of maybe his pitch on when he got hired. Is it the same sort of thing for Andy Green now, like years from now? We're going to say, oh, yeah, that one thing, but uh, no, Ron Fowler made him do that. I don't know, because I thought Fowler sounded like he was gritting his teeth through the whole uh, interview he had with Cilio this morning where he had to have his manager's back and, and whatnot. I thought Uncle Ron was all in favor of uh, uh, plunking him. but uh, And then at the AJ level, the thought that came to my mind, and correct me on the details, but... Bud Black did that had a similar situation in his last year here, correct? I, I think I want to say it was against the Braves, where Bud Black chose not to retaliate. People jumped all over Bud Black, and AJ Preller was the general manager at that point. And at a lot of people claimed, especially in the media, claimed that that was a point where where Bud Black quote unquote lost the clubhouse, and then AJ Preller made the decision to fire him. That makes me wonder what exactly AJ's. Um, feelings are on the topic so i i don't know it, it doesn't seem to me to be one of those it came from above examples okay that's fair and i i guess you know the next thing is like like certainly andy green soft right like i don't think i don't see how you look at this entire scenario like the the most hardened thing that Andy Green did in this entire thing was just to say that the play itself was dirty. He didn't, he didn't even say go dirty. so far to say that the to player say, was dirty. He refused dirty. to say dirty. He said cheap shot. Cheap shot. What a, yeah, see, he's even refusing like the he terminology to He refused to say dirty to and he refused to say, he refused to say malicious also. Yeah. But I guess the, the real question, and this is something that I wrote on um, – in the post was, you know, there's not really a question whether or not he's soft. And I know the potters are going to dispute that or whatever. The question is, does that even matter, right? Like, does that does it matter that you're soft? What do you think? I think you can be mature. You can be the grown-up in the conversation while also being soft. And I agree with you. I think he's probably soft. Uh, I think Bud Black was probably soft. But I agree with you that there's no evidence that that's a negative uh, attribute, um, I don't think there's maybe there is. I, I don't think there's evidence that says that. So I don't I don't really think that there's a, much of an impact to that. I mean, do you? I guess you could say he he could lose the I, clubhouse, but no. I mean, I, my whole concern is just whether or not someone's going to hit Anthony, uh, Austin Hedges in the future. You know, I don't even necessarily care about the clubhouse angle because I think most of the guys here aren't going to be here when the Potters are good again. Um, you know, there's or there's very few guys. Let me ask this. And I, I don't even think this is a real reason you have a manager. Like, I think the manager should be, you know, they're more for game strategy than having necessarily the respect of all the players. I think that's kind of a a non-quantifiable thing for a manager. So I don't really care about that. Again, the problem is just the strategy involved in letting everyone know you're soft. It's like an analogy I made was poker. It's fine to fold against bluffs. In fact, you probably should fold against some bluffs sometimes. Um, not necessarily if you know it's a bluff, but you know you can't always call everything. But you can't go into the game telling everyone you're always going to call a fold at every bluff because you know then you get picked on and everyone knows you're that person and there are repercussions for that down the line. I, I think there's a possibility that the risk for Austin Hedges or other catchers, or the risk for our players 
potentially getting hit by pitches in the future is higher because of this. It's certainly not lower. That's the problem. It's certainly – there was no remediation, so it could not possibly be lower than it was the other way around. So that's that's really my main takeaway from it is that strategically there were a bunch of strategic errors made. I don't know whether or not being soft matters. I don't really care about that. You just can't let everyone know you're the softest person. Like that's the main problem. Right. I think I'm in agreement with that. I mean, I think a lot of the machismo that you see on on Padre's Twitter is, it's just it's just that it, like that's that's where it ends. It's just machismo without thinking of the secondary effects of it. And there's probably a lot of secondary effects of being hard, too, right? But uh, I mean, to me, I, I I don't I don't think it matters. Um, the, the thing you said about whether Austin Hedges would get hit again. I think the much larger question, and this is more on a, a larger, you know, larger view of it, is the rule as it exists incentivizes the runner to do exactly what Anthony Rizzo did. Like, if you know you're going to be out at home plate, you should try to hit the catcher and knock the ball loose or have the catcher drop it and hope that the umpire has a bad angle or doesn't apply the rule correctly because... The punishment is that you're out, and you're already out. You, like you already know you're going to be out. So like, why wouldn't you try it? And so yeah, no, exactly. Um, that's why I'm not sure that Anthony Rizzo is a dirty player. Uh, I mean, I you could argue that strategy is dirty and, and it's certainly malicious, but it's also the best strategy to try to score. Right? Given the options there, you either can stop, go into a rundown, uh, just run and be out. Or try what Rizzo did. Like, given the options, he did the highest likelihood of success, I I would argue. Yeah, but I think there's, you know, you can do things within the context of the game that are dirty. I mean, certainly in the NFL, you can, you know, hit unsuspecting people during blocks. I know they've outlawed a lot of that recently, but, I mean, that's still dirty in the context of the game, even though technically you don't break any rules right stealing signs so i, I don't is not, think necessarily just because it's st- stealing signs is dirty yeah. but it's not against the rules uh is it i don't think it's against the I'm rules i'm not sure that might actually be against the rules but i mean but what rizzo did is against the rules it's just that he exploited the fact that the rule doesn't actually have a repercussion that's negative i mean it technically should, right? You could eject Anthony Rizzo based on the rule. You also are supposed to mandate that every other runner goes back to the blast base they touched. It doesn't matter if they're one millimeter away from the ba- the next base they're about to touch. They're all supposed to go back to the previous base. So there is a little bit of, of that in that rule, but none of it affected this play. So in this instance, there's a clear loophole. Um, I also thought that, you know, I brought up the quotes that Joe Torre and Tony Clark had at the time when the new rule came out. This was explicitly put in to prevent players from getting hurt. It wasn't put in for any other reason. And at the time, Joe Torre had said that, yeah, he'll examine every single one, one by one, and they might end up suspending players if they think it was malicious. And I don't see how, after watching this, you don't come up to that conclusion. So... I don't know. I don't, especially I'm, given Rizzo's I was actually quotes, pretty stunned. He, he pretty much openly admitted to it, that it wasn't an accident. At the point that right. it's not an accident, yeah, yeah, it yeah. is malicious. Yeah. Well, hey, let's let's segment to the next part of this, which is just 
I mean, we're talking about Andy Green. He's been the manager now for a little while. Uh, I put this out there on Twitter, and you wanted to talk about it on the podcast. What are his redeeming qualities as manager? Does he actually have any? I, I think it'd be hard to argue he doesn't. I mean, if we're talking purely fielding, positioning, shifts, um, he seems to – that's a net plus on him, correct? I, I think the statistics back that up on uh, like the success of his shifts – are near or top of the league, I think, right? So I think on that that kind of analysis and implementation, I think he is better than average for sure. Uh, I do think some of his attributes get um, maybe are overappreciated because it, people are like, oh, he talks really great. He's really smart. Um, but... He's a lot of times he's not really saying anything. He's he's really good at just talking and filling like column space for columnists, but he doesn't actually say anything. And so <laughs> the manager doesn't do that much, right? We've talked about this before and like the impact of a manager on a team's win-loss record, it's not very great. It's like like what is it? Like plus or minus a win. And so and this is how a lot of people defended or attacked Bud Black, where you'd be like, people would hate him, and you'd be like, well, he's at most worth like a, maybe an extra loss per year, and that's not that much. It's still a loss, but you know, it's not that much. Um, I mean, I think I think versus an absolute perfect computer, and and you have to remember with managers, I, I'm sure that there's more that you know if you go look at or talk to. Some of the Potter's analytic people. I don't know if you've ever met them before, but the people who actually do the math to figure out where the shift people should go—they don't let me near. There are more things. <laughs> there, there are more things that those people want to do than what's actually being done in the field. Like they want to do what I do in softball, which is, you know, if a left-hander comes up, we take our shortstop and we move him to the right side of the field 100% of the time. We we will even move our left field uh, left fielder to right field and our right fielder to left field. And absolutely optimize every single plate appearance. Um, those guys want to do that, and the Padres aren't doing that. And I'm sure there are other front office analytics people elsewhere in baseball that want to do other things that no one in baseball has ever done. So I don't think we can necessarily make call it a one win thing between absolute perfect robotic. Um, this guy does everything analytics wants him to do, manager, and what we currently have because th- what we're judging them against isn't perfect robotic. Right, we're judging them against each other. And I would imagine that Bud Black is only, yeah, maybe worth one less win because a lot of the other managers are not optimizing their team also. But if you had an example of a perfectly optimized team, it might be different, right? I mean, there were some games last year where Bud Black, or not last year, but in the past where he would opt not to pinch hit or he would sack bunt, and that decision would cost him like 15% of that one game by fan graphs, you know, expected win percentage. So I think it's more like two or three wins, but um, yeah, it's still... Yeah, I mean, it's not very much. In the grand scheme of things, it's a good player. I guess the thing the thing with Green is he's he does a lot of the same things that Bud Black was attacked for. Like, Bud Black, when he came in, when he was first hired, I remember, and I actually was, for some reason I was looking at stuff last night, but related to this when he was hired, but he was hailed as the sabermetric-friendly, stats-oriented uh, you know, manager at the time. That was his M.O. when when we hired him. And I think that Andy Green – Andy Green certainly implements it 
more so and probably better than Bud Black. But for all the talk of Andy Green, he doesn't implement a lot of these ideas. Like if you think even back to the whole keep the Padres weird movement in spring training, he's actually implemented none of those. I mean, I guess the Bethancourt experiment, but that was already um, that was already like underway before the season. Like he didn't implement any of those ideas so far this year. There's no opener, you know, which I think a lot of sabermetrics oriented people would agree is probably an optimal strategy for certain pitchers and certain matchups. And so I think a lot of the talk of Andy Green so sophisticated with uh, being statistically oriented is a little bit overblown and based on reputation more than practice. Um, but he also does a lot of the same things that Bud Black did. I mean, Bud Black got attacked every night for have. Uh, I remember reading all the uh, – he never has the same lineup every night, and so no one ever has a chance to get comfortable in their lineup position, which is of dubious merit as a complaint, but – Andy Green does the exact same thing. Like, I can't count the number of different lineups he's had this year. It's very rare when he has the same lineup night to night. Um, he doesn't use an optimized batting lineup very much. I mean, Eric Ibar should never be hitting higher than eight, maybe maybe seven in certain given certain personnel in the game. But he should certainly never be hitting second or first, which he has done this year. So I don't know with Andy Green. I mean... <laughs> So, so so then I see him as like, okay, well, those parts are maybe equal to Bud Black, but he does do the whole – he does shift more, and he does uh, – he's a little better at like defense – he's certainly better at defensive positioning is my guess, and that's worth something. So he's probably better than Bud Black, but I, I don't know. Sometimes I get this feeling – and I don't know if we talked about it on this podcast, but I know the East Village Times podcast discussed it about Will Myers being – basically a, a like a sacred cow where fans can't criticize him because he's the face of the franchise and i feel sometimes the same about andy green where if you do have legitimate gripes about him you get shouted down uh as if green can do no wrong and that stuff like that does bother me a little bit i mean do you pick up on the same vibe about him yeah i mean i think he's a slightly until until yesterday, until yesterday, like the veil has been pierced, and now I'm curious what how the fan base treats him. But up until yesterday, I felt like he had this just protective shield around him that could deflect all criticism, and he would have defenders. Yeah, and to I think just going back criticism. to the strategy part with Bud Black, I would say he is marginally better than Bud Black, but I still don't think he's actually good. Like, there's still far too many intentional walks. There's still far too many sacrifice hits. The lineup optimization is not there. I mean, there's just there's a handful of he doesn't sack uh, doesn't necessarily pinch hit when you're supposed to like at least by the book. Um, you know, optimize optimizing your win percentage at the at bat versus blah 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 blah, and you know, let alone all the uh, let's get the Padres weird or whatever uh, potential strategies they could employ. Like, he's just, like, a slightly more mild version of Bud Black in terms of those things, which is fine. It's an improvement over Bud Black. I'm still very happy Bud Black's not here, but it's not good, and I am kind of glad this veil has been pierced, as you've stated, because, and and I agree with, by the way, because now we can actually start talking about these things without getting called idiots. So yeah, you you would get savaged before this. Yeah, and and absolutely. in a way, Will and, but Myers. This, but to be honest, failed. it wasn't even 
it wasn't even worth talking about. It was just such like a minor thing, like we said at the beginning of the podcast. Like, who gives a shit about what the manager does this season? I thought it was impossible for Andy Green to offend fans this season because I, I, I know I threw out the idea of him pulling a player in the middle of a no hitter. I don't actually think he would do that. So like, I thought it was like a bona fide like there's no way this guy screws it up um, sort of thing this year. But I'm I actually am kind of glad we can start talking about these things because he's he's not really that good. But he he talks such a good game that all of these innovative strategies are being used. And like, I'm just flipping through box scores, but like Julius Chassin is hitting he's OPSing 655, 652 right now. Julius Chassin is a good hitter. Like, he leads the major leagues in hits for a pitcher, or he's tied. He may have taken the lead, actually. Like, you have Luis Torrens OPSing 454, and, like, if he was really statistically oriented, like, would he consi- wouldn't he consider putting Tor- Torrens or, you know, Ibar at ninth and putting Chassin eighth? Or, like, there's, there's, like, a lot of innovative things he could do if the statistics support it that I just don't think he's willing to do. I think he's still got that. He's still got that blame of, shifting mentality. There's though, a little bit of dabbling you, into. The and this was, I think, a case with Bud Black, where sometimes it's safer to just do the the accepted norm, even though it's the wrong choice. Because if you do the accepted norm, no one can blame you if something goes wrong. Like it's just blame shifting or blame avoidance, and I think the promise of Andy Green when he first came here was that he'd be different. And that he would try these. And, and, you know, if any season was created for trying innovative ideas, testing them, uh, implementing them, this is it. And he's not really doing it. Yeah, I mean, he kind of dabbled with hitting the pitcher eighth early in the year. But it kind of speaks to, like, not actually having, like, a bona fide, you know, dogma about it like if you're gonna hit the pitcher eighth that's what you should do almost every game right like how how does it really change from game one to game two in terms of lineup optimization like either it's a good strategy or it's not if you have the same players on the field so i there's definitely been a little bit of wavering in terms of what they try to do um but, like I said, I wasn't really paying attention to it this year. I'm going to probably start watching that a little bit more now, now that it's, like, an actually an actual topic, and now that he's actually shown himself to be fairly poor at these strategic decisions. Like, the entire thing of the Anthony Rizzo thing really just comes down to the fact that he had a strategic advantage he could have used, this fear in the other team, or trying to get the other team not to play Anthony Rizzo, and he just broadcast to the entire league that he wasn't going to use that advantage at all. That, to me, opens up the can of worms of, all right, where else is he screwing up strategically? And now I'm going to start thinking of all these other things because I wasn't paying attention to it before this because I just figured it didn't matter this year at all. Like, we kind of want to lose. Maybe he's trying to do that anyways. But now if he's going to hide behind this veil of, no, hitting a batter is worse for the team. we got to do what's best for winning. Well, okay, I will hold you up to the win. <laughs> you want to be judged by winning now. I will judge all of your moves in terms of winning. That's fine. If that's the the hill you're going to die on here. So I mean, I think I, I at least for me uh, like it's, he's not a bad manager. He's fine. Uh you know, you, you know, we fans yeah, I think it's slightly Bruce below Bucci average his last year here also. Like even a Hall of Fame manager was receiving ample criticism from the fan base at the time. And so 
I get it. Managers are easy punching bags. And I don't want to just jump on Andy Green and say he's a terrible manager and he's soft and thus terrible because I don't think there's causality or that that's a true statement. I think he's fine. I just don't – sometimes it just bothers me that he's treated like this uh, just golden god that can do no wrong and that – so I'm kind of with you that I like that the veil has been pierced and that that's at least a a valid topic for discussion because I I think there's a lot of interesting points that can come out of it. And hopefully for us as fans, maybe that leads to some kind of improvement. Because if you're in an echo chamber where you don't ever get criticism, you don't improve. Like it's that's what uh, like groupthink is from. Like you don't you just think everything you're doing is perfect, and you just don't seek improvement. I think there's room for improvement. I think we'd both agree about that. Yeah. Well, let's get off. Let's get off the Rizzo affair. I think we've I think we've adequately covered it. Uh, we did want to talk about well we did want to briefly talk about, else to talk about uh, trade I mean, value i think and mlb trade rumors put out uh, a post last week that just outlined what the padres trade chips are um i don't know if you read that one it was in my this week in padres twitter that i put out today I did. but uh i think we can both agree brad hand as of today is our probably our largest trade ship right i mean of the most likely guys to get traded i mean i, I bet you will myers will get you more in a trade but yeah I mean, if you're talking most trade value in the org, I mean that's a totally different question. Let, but let's say that'll get let's say that'll get traded. The, yeah, of the plausible potential trade. I mean, candidates, I mean, I think Brad we Hand. Both, yes. We could both yes. put out an argument for why Will Myers should could be traded, but uh, let's not get into that. So Brad Hand, the the idea was floated that AJ was demanding a Will Smith type return, which I'm I'm not mistaken was a top fifty prospect. And what a former top prospect! I think another top hundred, or previously had dropped out of the top hundred, something like that. Yeah, dropped out, I think. So there's one key difference in that Will Smith had an additional year of control. Um, Brad Hand has arguably, until the last month or so, been slightly better. So I don't know if that balances out. But do you expect him to get that kind of return? I would be stoked if he gets a top 50 prospect. Like, absolutely stoked. Um, no, that's not to say he's not worth that. But I, you know, before the season, I lined out, you know, what is the best case scenario for the Padres this year. And literally the best case scenario was that they prop up some of these relievers and trade them for value in the future. So if they follow through on that and the Padres get a top 50 prospect for Brad Hand, yeah, I'm going to be thrilled because he's not going to be here when the Padres are good. And he's a relief pitcher, which are extremely easy to produce. In fact, we just brought one up who looks pretty damn good. And we have many more guys like him on the way, including starting pitchers that will fail at starting pitching that will come become relief pitchers. It's just like the very last thing you need um, during a rebuild. So I am totally happy with them potentially getting a top 50 pick. Will they? I don't know. And at this point, I, I'm not even sure if we should really – necessarily judge it right away based on that because i made the mistake and i think you made the mistake as well of prematurely judging the fernando tatis jr trade without giving him any time at all in our minor league system when we have since seen that that was a scouting coup by the padres so as long as they're getting players that you know they scout and believe are top 50 players whether or not they're actually currently on baseball america's top 50 matters a little bit less to me 
because they've proven themselves that they can target those players. Well, at least so in one we've instance. T- we've touched on it on the podcast before, specifically related to not trading Tyson Ross. And some of the reason for that was AJ has a strategy where he says, I believe Tyson Ross is worth this. And if nobody will offer that price, he's unwilling to decrease his price to what the market is offering him. And so as a result, he held on to Tyson Ross. And, I mean, it, it obviously turned out very poorly. So I put out on Twitter that I felt it was mandatory that they trade Brad Hand and that if AJ's strategy is I want a Will Smith return or no deal, I think that's a real problem. I mean, do you I, – I think when you've got relievers like Brad Hand, they're iffy year to year. Like we're very lucky that he's repeating his good performance from last year, but – I don't think that's something you bank on where you're like, well, we'll just hold on to him and then see what we can get next year. I think that would be a, a real mistake. Yeah, no, I don't disagree, um, particularly because relief pitchers, you know, they're pitching more often, so the injury risk is, in my opinion at least, appears to be a little bit higher. And their performance can waver pretty drastically. There's a lot more variance year to year. And the results, because they're just throwing fewer innings, so there's just like less of a statistical odds that they look as good on paper as they really are. So I think you trade them whenever you can, whenever you're getting, I guess, what you consider value. It doesn't mean you go out and if there's no offers, you just take the 100th prospect. I think that would be, you know, maybe you can do better next year because you still have a couple years of control, Brad Hand, but... I mean, I wouldn't say okay. I, I, for example, I have the Sporting News recent update to their top fifty prospect list up. You know, Reese Hopkins for the Phillies is ranked fiftieth. You know, if if a team came around with the fifty first prospect and was offering them that player, and AJ was like, "Nope, top fifty or higher," obviously that's a problem. Like you, at that point in time, you got to be taking the player just based on the not just the risk we've experienced with Tyson Ross, but just being practical about it, anyways. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it is sort of mandatory, and again, sort of mandatory, only because in the case that they don't get any good offers at all, and I think they will get good offers, um, they should be accepting him. Yeah, I, I do think outside of Brad Hand, I mean, Solarte's hurt. Uh, <laughs> he's not getting traded. So outside of yeah, Hand, great I mean, there's really only a chance to, if we're talking like some kind of return we'll actually care about, uh, Actually, quick aside, uh, I know MLB trade rumors had things like Clayton Richard, Trevor Cahill, uh, Julius Chassin. They're all possible trade. Uh, they're all possible trade options, right? Nobody on Padres Twitter or in the fan base should be thinking that they will receive some kind of Drew Pomer. I, I've seen people say like, "Well, we'll just get another Drew Pomeranz return." Like we got Anderson Espinosa for him. <laughs> uh, I think that we both agree that. There's a very big difference, regardless of how well Trevor Cahill pitches, uh, in that he's only under a one-year contract, whereas Drew Pomeranz, the Red Sox were buying years of control after. Yeah, and Pomeranz is left-handed. He's younger. He has better stuff. There's more of a history of him pitching well in recent history as a relief pitcher. Like, There's a lot more right. that supports Drew Pomeranz but, and but Cahill. Low Honestly, cost I'll control, be, I will be control stoked if we is, get a- is very... Control of his his you know as as a of his contract that's very important though as far as trade value goes, right? And I would be 
excited if we even got like the 180th prospect for Trevor Cahill. Because if yeah, you think I about mean, it this I, way, I still don't know if you how could accept. Got, uh, think about it this way, Naylor. Could, yeah, yeah. If think about it this way, if you could cash. accept, if you could accept a uh, first round comp pick for Trevor Cahill, you obviously would accept the first round comp pick. But yes. those guys aren't going to be ranked in the top 100 prospects. So you're clearly already saying you would accept something out of the top 100 for him. So obviously, I would accept the 180th. It's barely out of the top 100. Um, yeah, I mean, at right. this and point, anything a comp, with a yeah, anything with like any sort of upside at all, even what they got for Derek Norris or even um, what they got from Melvin Upton and Hansel Rodriguez, although he's not looking very good, I would take any of those guys for Trevor Cahill because Cahill right. has no future here. The the Cashner trade is a little more comparable, although I'd argue Cashner Cashner always had that intangible like people could dream on him because of his velocity where if he just had the right pitching coach he'd be dominant so but that that return was josh naylor which was a non-top 100 prospect just off the top 100 and that was but a great Kashner return was also, for him cashner had also put up three straight years of two plus wins above replacement so right. i mean i know yes. he's having a bad year last year so but there was like at least a track history of him being an effective starter not good but he had stuff you can dream on uh if you're an idiot like josh burns but um. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. I would not expect a Josh Naylor for Trevor Cahill. Like I said, I would accept almost anything for Trevor Cahill. Right. I mean, I think we'll all pretend to be excited with what the return is, but uh, let's not let's not get too excited. Yeah. Let's get excited for what Brad Hand brings back. Maybe you bundle some stuff in. Maybe we throw Maurer in. That'd be fine. Maybe we can get Juan Soto for him. God, that that's all be, I want. That's all I, I want. We would have to change the podcast to the Juan Soto podcast. Oh, yeah, we just have to change it to the Sploosh podcast. <laughs> uh, although, I, honestly, I, I think he's uh, probably... If you're hoping for him for Brad Hand straight up, I, you probably have your your mindset too high on this one. I don't know. I haven't, che- I haven't checked. He back. seems like a prospect that will be on the rise. But, I mean, he was a just off the top 100 prospect list. He's uh, playing in Hagerstown, and I don't know if you know anything about where I work, but uh, we do a I lot of business with people who live in Hagerstown, and uh, they go to the Hagerstown games, and they talk about this player. Or by, by they, I mean one person who works in Hagerstown I talk to. So I think uh, he's, I mean, he's having a really he's good year. putting up incredible numbers. Yeah, so maybe let's not get our, our hopes set on this one uh, Nationals prospect that you have an irrational crush on. But I mean – to be fair, uh, we have a lot of prospects. Like we have a glut of prospects that are clogging up the. Like we have actual gluts at positioning where we're having to do things like have six man rotations. Um, Two Arizona league teams. Yeah, like, putting seventeen year olds like uh, Justin Lopez in um, uh, Tri City. He's the youngest player to ever play in that league. Right. Yeah. He's not, he's not um, even 18. He can't vote. And he's not even playing shortstop. He's supposed cigarettes. to be a shortstop. They're playing him at third base. So, like, they're doing weird things because of these gluts. Right, yeah. So then at that point, like, God, can we just get Juan Soto? That's all I want. That's my dream. Just Juan Soto. I don't want Robles. I, I just want Soto. That's. I'll be considered a uh, just a Nostradamus if that's who we end up getting. Yeah, but be careful what you wish for. I once predicted the Padres would trade Houston Street for Alexia Marista and another prospect, 
and uh, wait, no, not Houston Street. Sorry, I predicted that we would trade. Um, oh God, who was it for Alexi? Am- who do we ended up trading and got Amarista for? Mujica? Uh, no, Ernesto Frieri. Ernesto Frieri. That's right. I actually like legitimately called that trade um, like six months in advance, and then Alexi Amarista was my least favorite player for about six years. So Why be are careful you, you be wish, sorry wish about for. that. That was like the greatest thing that ever happened to me as a fan in that era. <laughs> That's saying something about the era. That was the oh God. Alexi was great. Don't be smirch Alexi's name on this podcast, Marver. I will always. I think that's all we got, right? Is that is that our agenda? Did we knock everything off? No, I mean, almost. Rest in peace, uh, Diaz. Right? Ah, Diaz. Yes, he's gone. But uh, real quick on that, Diaz. Now you missed that. Oh, I get it. Now you see what you did there. That's good wordplay. I mean, if we're if we're speaking honestly here, like I feel bad for the guy because his arm is hurt, and um, but. It's kind of good. Like, the dream with a Rule 5 player is that they get hurt, right? And you can stash them on the DL. Yeah. And then stick them back in the minors quite, next quite year. quite nice. We've also got, like, a glut of, like we said, a glut of players. So this opens up a spot. Hopefully not for, well, maybe for entertainment value, Jared Weaver. But maybe this is the spot. No, you for the tank, dude. We, the, got, we have five and a half games we have to catch up on the Phillies. Yeah, we right. need Weaver we to. Do need. This is why we got him. He's, we, yeah. Earn your paycheck, Weaver. Yeah. But if they don't okay. go that route, I mean, there are players they could call up, that, you know, that are probably ready to at least get a nice little audition. Yeah. Move some players out. that'll because the problem is that you've got these people being blocked, and there's like a glut of people at Single A Elsinore that need to move up, but there's not a spot for them. So something like this had to happen. He'll always have the GIF though, the GIF. Sorry, the GIF. Okay. Well, um, I mean, that was all I wrote down. So I think that's uh, all I got. Yep. All right. Well, I, I think we've agreed. Andy Green is soft, and uh, yeah. But that may be okay. But that may be okay. Yes, it's just a strategy aspect of it was terrible. But, but uh, until you, we are that? watching you, everyone we, is watching you now. Yeah. Now it's an open book, right? Now it's open season on Andy Green's strategic decisions because apparently he's playing to win every game. So that's right. We will judge you in that context now. So hey, Barbara, until next let's, time, uh, yeah. let's get that other let's get that other post out. Yeah, I'm going to get that I know out. It's and been I'm, in the drafts. Let's get it out. And I'm work- teasing it for weeks. I know, I know. It's gonna be it's gonna be there. And I'm working on getting Mad Friars to come on too to talk about it. So that'll be Excellent. good. Yes. And until next time, uh, go Padres. Go Padres. <laughs>